Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 1 this morning? John chapter 1, we have finally reached the end of the first chapter of John. After many months, I hope you're being blessed and helped as much as I am in studying to prepare these sermons from this wonderful gospel. Let's look this morning at the call of Christ, part two. So let me begin in verse 35 and then go through the end of the chapter, but we'll go back and look at the second half of this episode in John's gospel being verses 43 through 51. (laughs) Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, help us now as we open Your Word. Speak clearly through it. By Your Holy Spirit, open ears that are deaf and eyes that are blind to see and behold wonderful things as You have revealed Yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as we go through the Gospels, one thing becomes strikingly clear. And that is this, that Jesus never lived an unintentional day in His earthly life. There has never been a moment in Jesus' life where He was simply drifting and allowing things to happen. No, Jesus did everything with a purpose. Jesus had a plan for everything that He did. Jesus never had an accidental encounter. Jesus still has no accidental encounters. He never had an unused opportunity. Jesus made the most of every opportunity He had to accomplish His mission that had been given Him by His Father. Jesus has never had and will never have A target that remains unhit. Jesus accomplished everything that the Father gave Him to do. And He is still accomplishing everything that the Father has given Him to do. And He will not fail to accomplish all that the Father has given Him to do. So as we come to the text this morning, it's helpful to understand a little bit 
about the men that Jesus called and used. And even though we look at these great men, these 12 apostles, as they would come to be called, even though they did and accomplished great things, we do not worship them, nor would they want us to worship them. Rather, the, the point of fixation remains on Jesus. The man who accomplishes all the Father's will. The man who never has an accidental meeting. The man who is intentional and always at work expanding the mission from his Father. Even though he uses at times the lives of 12 very unlikely men like you and like me to accomplish that end. And so this morning we come into the second phase of Jesus gathering men to himself in order to be used, calling his disciples. And as is the case last time, so it is this morning. We find cases where Jesus exalts himself by his call of his disciples. And I want you to see that this morning. How is it that these men accomplished great things? It wasn't because they were great men. They were not. They were men like us. Men and, and women who followed Jesus as well. They had feet of clay. They were imperfect people. But how was it that Jesus used them? And I would submit to you this morning that Jesus used the men both in their call and in their subsequent ministries as they exalted him. That's what made them powerful, was their exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we begin in verse 43 with the exaltation of Jesus' authority. The exaltation of Jesus' authority found in verses 43 and 44. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee. And and when we read that Jesus purposes to do something, Jesus does something. Jesus' purpose is not, you know, I'd really like to do that. Like so much of the, the, the things, if you looked at my daytime, or uh, yeah, I'd still do mine on paper. If you looked at it, you would see that Brian purposed to do all of these tasks today and yet only got to about half of them. That never happened with Jesus. When Jesus purposed to do something, Jesus did it without fail. And so Jesus purposes to go into this region of Galilee and there he finds Philip and Jesus said to him follow me now Philip was from Bethsaida a city in Galilee the same city that Andrew and Peter are from who had just previously started following Jesus and obviously Philip follows the Messiah Jesus wastes no time he is rapidly gaining followers for himself Uh, he starts with Andrew and as There is a second disciple who is unnamed. We believe that is John, the writer of this gospel, who was not quick to name himself in anything. He liked to stay in the background. And so he has Andrew and most likely John and then Peter. And he's got three disciples who who are now following him. And in case you ask the question, well, what about Matthew 4? Because in Matthew 4, it would seem that Jesus calls them For the first time. So is there a contradiction? There's not. Uh, Jesus apparently calls them here in John chapter 1. There's a brief hiatus where they go home. uh, They go back to their normal lives, if you will. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus comes along and for a final time says, follow me. And they, at that time, leave everything behind. This is a preparatory call, if you will, in John chapter 1. But nevertheless, Jesus is moving about the region and calling men to follow him in a ministry which would prove to be controversial. And he continues to call men to himself throughout his ministry to hear his words and to follow him. Jesus goes into unlikely places to call those people. In fact, I would recommend a book to you if you have any desire to read more about the twelve apostles and how Jesus took broken men and used them for His glory, I would encourage you to read John MacArthur's book, Twelve Ordinary Men. Fantastic book. But he goes into places that were viewed as outside and unworthy 
undignified places where the Messiah surely would never go to that part of town. He'd never go to that part of the country. He'd never deal with those people. And yet, those are the very places he went and those are the very people that he called. Why? So that Jesus could exalt himself rather than they being able to claim some credit. And so here we find an example of that. Jesus is exalting his authority. He is exalting himself as he goes into a a territory, Galilee, that was one of those neighborhoods, if you will. It was outside of the recognition of the religious crowds of the Jews. They didn't much care for the Galileans. They had been too... Uh, influenced by the Greeks of their day. It was a Greco-Roman influence that pervaded Galilee, and so they were looked upon as impure and tainted. Yes, they were Jewish, but they weren't pure Jews. They'd not stayed true to the faith like we have over here in Judea. And so there was a great prejudice involved as Jesus begins to call men to his ministry. But Jesus purposes to go into Galilee, an area despised again by Judean Israelites as second class. And Jesus determines, he wills it to be so. Jesus is unaffected by what you think, and he's unaffected by what I think. Just as he has been unaffected by what the religious people in any age have thought. He doesn't care about their cultural and religious prejudices. Jesus is going to do what Jesus has been sent to do, and that is to accomplish the will of His Father by divine authority. And so Jesus goes to get to Galilee from where Jesus has previously been, the easiest point of entry into that part of the world from the Judean wilderness where He first encounters John the Baptist was through this little fishing town of Bethsaida. F.F. Bruce, the the commentator of years gone by, refers to it as Fishertown. Jesus goes through Fishertown, again, a, a lowly occupation in a lowly place. And as verse 44 here makes clear, Uh, It is the hometown of men who are already following him. So as they are following Jesus, they're going back home. And it wasn't a map that takes Jesus through Bethsaida. It wasn't Peter and Andrew saying, hey, we know a really good fish place, seafood place we want to take you to. So why don't we just stop through Bethsaida on our way into Galilee going deeper And we'll treat you to a meal like you've never had. That's not the point. The point is simply this. There wasn't a map, but a man that causes Jesus to go into Bethsaida of Galilee. That man's name is Philip. Jesus, by his authority, is working all of this out, working out all of the details. Jesus moves strategically and intentionally into this area because he has a divine appointment with Philip. Just as for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus once had a divine appointment with you as well. A time when you met him. When you came to acknowledge his authority and his divinity and your need for a Savior and he being the only hope for you. That 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 is no less authoritative, no less divine than what he's doing here with Philip. But so that we might understand more about Jesus and more about how Jesus operates, we have preserved for us the story of Philip. Jesus, again, moving strategically to meet this man. The Greeks, the Greek indicates that He looked for, he had set out for, he determined to find this man, Philip. It would be the driving force behind the story. Jesus has gone and he's looking for his man. As you might have noticed already, although it just grows with each passing day, Jesus has been demonstrating the qualities of God. 
He's been displaying divine sovereignty that made him the savior that he is. He's been doing things and he's been calling men and he's been telling men about himself and about his mission. And here Jesus just continues to repeat that. And again, it's not just their story, it's our story. If we know Jesus Christ, this is how we too have come to know Him. It's because He came and found us. John says it this way in his epistles, we love Him because He first loved us. We were not seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking us. Romans 3 tells us, There is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. But thankfully, we have a Savior who, by His divine authority, comes and seeks and saves us who were lost. That we might be found. So while we may be amazed at the unfolding story of the Gospels with Philip and Nathaniel and Peter and Andrew, don't ever forget, brothers and sisters, that's your story too. That's how you've come to be who you are and where you are. Because a Savior had a divine appointment from eternity past with you that He ordained and then orchestrated and then consummated in your salvation. It's no different. He came to us even when we were, or maybe even unaware of His presence. Some of us may have heard the Gospel many times and for many years before we came to actually believe. That doesn't mean that God wasn't working. He absolutely was. But He had an appointed time in which we would come to faith in Him. He called us even when we didn't desire His ministry to us. I'm pretty sure that on this morning, Philip did not awake in Galilee and think to himself, you know, today my life's going to change forever. I'm going to find the Messiah today, and then everything's going to be all right, and the kingdom's going to come, and uh, I'll be part of that. I'm pretty sure that wasn't on Philip's you know, chalkboard as he left his home that morning. But nevertheless, Jesus knew exactly where to find Philip. He knew he, where he was going, and he knew whom he was going after. And so without preamble or follow-up, Q&A time with Jesus. Jesus changes Philip's life. He looks at Philip, look at the text. And he says at the end of verse 43, very simply, follow me. Philip doesn't say, now Jesus, I'd like uh, to ask you some questions. I'd like to you know, enter into a contract with you. I'd like a probationary period of discipleship. And, and, and then, you know, if everything works out, then I will follow you. It's not what Philip does, is it? Philip just follows him. In fact, we don't even read much about Philip following. What we do find, though, is Philip going and grabbing someone else as quickly as he can. Jesus' authority and his sovereignty is evident in Philip's life as he immediately responds to the call of Jesus. And that's our Savior. That is our Savior. When He calls, things happen. When Jesus speaks to the dead, they live. When Jesus speaks to the rebel, they lay down their arms. When Jesus speaks to the doubting like Thomas, they believe. When Jesus speaks to the sick, they're made well. When Jesus calls His sheep, they follow Him because they are His sheep and they know His voice. When Jesus speaks, things happen. He's not a religious leader. He is the sovereign King of the universe. And His power is evident when He calls men and women like us. Like Philip. Like Nathaniel. And he exalts his authority that we see him clearly to be Messiah. As John moves through his gospel, as we continue to trek through this glorious gospel, he'll march us through the life of Jesus Christ, and we will see this repeated over and over 
and over again. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter how many you are. It does not matter what power you think you possess. Nobody thwarts the authoritative plan of Jesus Christ. In fact, we'll talk about it a little more next Lord's Day, Lord willing. That the crowds, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he did so, and the events that happened happened under his authoritative watch so that it would trigger the events that led to his own death. Because never forget, Jesus said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. And if I lay it down, then I have the authority to take it up again. And take it up, he did. Jesus never misses an opportunity to demonstrate his exalted authority. Meeting Jesus, meeting the Messiah in Philip's case and in our case is without a doubt a life-changing event. When we meet Jesus, it has a certain predictable outcome and effect. People who meet Jesus are just not the same. And there's a, there's a certain ability to know when, when Jesus comes and He calls you and Jesus meets you as He does Philip, there are certain things that change about you. And it's predictable. It, it, it's, it's visible. It's tangible. It is truth. There is fruit that begins to grow where there had only been a dead tree. There, there is a change in desire and appetite. There is a new desire for His Lordship in our life. There is a change that sees Christ as all-sufficient and all-precious to us. There is change that happens. And it's true for Philip. I want you to notice this. Not only does Jesus exalt His authority, secondly, He exalts by demonstration. In verses 45 and 46, having called Philip to follow Him, and Philip obviously doing so, Philip demonstrates the exalted nature of Christ by what He does. In other words, Christ in Him causes Him to do something. You wonder what made the 12 apostles go out and turn the world upside down and to be beaten and to be thrown into prison too many times to count? Christ in them. The hope of glory. Christ demonstrating His power of salvation in them. Exalts Himself even more and more. And so here we have this sort of exalted demonstration and Verses 45 and 46, our attention is immediately seized by the instant, forthright, bold action of Philip to become the second evangelist in Bethsaida in as many days. Bethsaida has now become evangelist central. First we have Andrew, and now we have Philip. This little fisher town, Galilee, is producing men who are no longer seeking for fish. They're seeking for men. They're man fishing, as Thomas Boston, the Puritan writer, would have said. They are man fishing. And they are excited to be doing it. We commend the evangelistic zeal of Philip as we did Andrew before him. But what we might not understand is that while Nathaniel, like Peter, become the beneficiaries of the ministries of these two men, Andrew and Philip. What they provide for us is an even greater service beyond their own salvation. They, they give us something to see of Jesus. Praise God, we're going to see Peter, we're going to see Nathaniel in heaven someday. But what is better than that is what they allowed by their calling a platform for Jesus to demonstrate who He is. And you remember last time as we looked at verse 42, Jesus looks at Peter and He says to him, You're Simon, the son of John. You floundering, spineless, 
shifty, always changing, hot-headed, undependable Peter, you're now going to be a rock. You're not moving anymore. Because I'm changing you. So he does with Nathaniel. So he does with Nathaniel. I want you to notice that Philip's concern is found in his elaboration. It's not Nathaniel's response that helps us to learn more about Jesus' identity. It's Philip's own sermon to his friend. Philip found Nathaniel, verse 45, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip just simply says, Well, come and see. Proof is in the pudding. Come and see. You tell me. Philip, in his evangelism, doesn't center on Nathanael's response. Philip's evangelism centers on who Christ is. And by seeing who Christ is, we are changed. Notice his words. Come, we have found Him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Listen, this guy is saying, let, I, let me preach the Old Testament to you. That, that sums it up. From the law, that's the beginning of the Old Testament, to the prophets, the end of the Old Testament, that's everything in between. Philip says, we found the man that all of those writings talk about. And you've got to come see him. He wanted Christ to be the central focus of this encounter, not how Nathaniel was going to respond. Let me try to distill that down a little bit for where we live. I don't know when it started, but I can tell you this. That our evangelism, particularly here in the West and the United States, has become so utterly ineffectual, so utterly powerless, that it is almost a shame to call it Christian. Because what we've been trained to do and trained to think of is starting from the person, not the Savior. And we want to talk about their needs and we want to talk about their felt uh, you know, desires and we want to talk about all these things and how you know, Jesus can change their life and how Jesus will make them better and how Jesus will give them what they want. To the point that Jesus just becomes no better than Aladdin in a little bottle. Rub the Bible in a few places. Throw out a few proof texts. Throw out a few favorite verses. And watch Jesus do amazing things for you. That's not how Philip starts his evangelistic endeavor. He says, you've got to come meet a man that begins with Moses and goes all the way through to Malachi and everything in between tells you everything you need to know about him, Nathaniel. We've heard it in the synagogue. We've read it from the Torah. We know who this is. And I am telling you authoritatively, I have found him. And you've got to come meet him. He doesn't say, Nathaniel, how do you feel about yourself today? Nathaniel, what is it you feel like you need? He says, you need to come meet Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the promised one that Israel has waited for for so long. Philip knew that to see Christ appropriately is to be changed fully. Did you hear that? To see Christ appropriately is to be changed fully. We try to change people based on what they do or they want or how they feel about it. And 
manipulate the situation. He says, listen, you don't need 12 steps. You don't need a five-minute presentation. I, I, I remember years ago, 20 years ago, when one publishing house came out with an evangelistic program that guaranteed you in five minutes or less you can lead somebody to Christ. I don't think Philip ever read that book. Philip said, you don't just need this quick little experience, this quick little ditty that, that seeks to overcome your human objections and focus on you. You need to come sit at his feet. And I promise you this, when you see him, when you know him, you will be changed by him. I don't make a promise about a timeline. I don't make a promise about how it's going to affect you, Nathaniel. You have to come and see Jesus. What Philip revealed to his friend is that this one has authority and he demonstrated that by changing Andrew's life and Peter's life and then his life. I want you to notice something else in Philip's words. He says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus and Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Let me ask you a question. Philip seems to be placing a lot of emphasis upon the word, doesn't he? That's his canon. That's his basis. That's his starting place. But let me ask you a question. If the word is powerful, do you believe that the one who wrote it is even more powerful? That's that's the essence. Philip is saying, listen, the word speaks to him, but I've got something better than the, than, the, than the law. I've got something better than a scroll. I've got the one who wrote the scroll. You've got to come meet him. You've got to come see this authority. You've read about it, now come see it. Come see how he's changed me. Philip's mind is made up. He, the Greek text is in the perfect tense. He found him no more seeking it's over it's done we have found him it's complete we've got everything we need it's here i'm convinced you'll never convince me otherwise no need to look further in most of your bibles if you look at look at your bible there in verse 45 there's a little dash in most of your bibles We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, dash. And that dash has a very, it's not there by accident. It wasn't thrown in by later translators. It it is in the original text and it has a very technical meaning. Let me see if I can interpret it for you, okay? You're not going to Hey, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. You're not going to believe this. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That, that's it. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That, it, 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 it's building anticipation. It's Joseph's son. That's him. I, I know, I couldn't believe either. Come and see. It's typical. This is how people in Jesus' day would positively identify someone. You're from a town, and you're the son of a man in that town. So there's no mistaking. There's no mistaking about who Philip is describing. You're not going to believe this. He's been right here the whole time. It's Joseph's son, Jesus of Nazareth. D.A. Carson points out the detail that Nazareth Nazareth was a a fact often used by the Jews to discredit Jesus' claim of deity. Oh, you're that guy from Nazareth. Oh, you're right, we don't believe it. From their perspective, Jesus being from Nazareth was a disqualification, but from God's perspective, it was the ultimate qualification. Because he didn't come like men. He didn't come as a king of men. He didn't come as a god, as it were, like the Roman emperors did. 
There's nobody who can look at Jesus and say, in some way, you are what you are and you are who you are because of us. His parents couldn't say that. His earthly parents. His community could not say that. His region could not say that. God uses the most unlikely place to call His Son out of. It is the most unlikely story to invade human history. Think about it. That God would save the entire world from the world's greatest problem, which is not nuclear proliferation. It is not famine. It is not uh, economic problems. It is sin. And God raises up a man who can deal with that problem. Your sin and my sin and the sin of all who will believe. God deals with that by the virgin birth of a man born into a town despised by everyone. That's not even Joseph's son. And Nazareth? I mean, really, even if it had been, it's Nazareth we're talking about. What good comes out of Nazareth? Nathaniel's just echoing what he's been told his whole life. Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Yet Jesus perfectly outshines every messianic expectation that the religious Jews could throw at him. Anything they thought he should be, Jesus was better. That's the point of Hebrews. Anything you can think the Savior should be, Jesus is better. What a Savior. The greatest thing you can imagine your Messiah to be, Jesus is greater. He did things that only God could do. He said things only God would say. And what is Nathaniel's response? Pure scorn. Really? Nazareth? Come on, Philip. You need to go lie down and get some rest. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. We might interpret it better in English if we said it this way to get the effect of it. Nazareth? Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? The shock, the scandal, the emphatic placement of the city Nathaniel communicates nothing but scorn. His inquisition is of the ability of this small, no-name, irreputable Galilean town to produce anything of lasting value. In other words, he's asking, does it even really have the ability to do that? Who lives there? Nobody lives there that's going to produce a bloodline that can do anything. It's just, no. It's the ultimate definition of flyover country in Nathaniel's mind. Just worthless. What prejudice. The town is all wrong. In fact, how, just so you have some comprehension of why Nathaniel would say what he said, just so you understand how little people thought about Nazareth, you cannot find Nazareth in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Talmud, in the Jewish Midrash, or any of the other Jewish sacred texts of that era. They don't mention it. You are so low and little thought of, you are persona non grata. You don't even exist. And the pedigree is all wrong. You're telling me Messiah claims to have a father named Joseph? God has a father? That's interesting. And he's a carpenter on top of that. That's even more degrading. Yeah, Philip, really? I, I just can't even begin to imagine. Nathaniel is just stating the facts of his mind. His filter's gone. He's just being honest. Right? At least he's not playing along. Oh, yeah. Well, you have your Jesus and your Messiah and I'll have mine. No, he's just being honest. I don't see how that's even remotely possible. Philip, leave me alone. So Philip does what any third grader knows to do. He lays down the dare. 
Oh, I dare you. You know, we, we might have said it like this in grade school. I triple, double, dog dare you. Come and see. All right, wise guy, come and tell me. You come see, and then you tell me what you see when you get there. J.A. Bengals says it was, it was the best remedy against preconceived ideas. Come and experience. F.F. Bruce says that honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. So true. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. It just overcomes it. When you come and you really want to know, and your, your mind is open, and you really want to see, and you're honestly evaluating it, that's a good cure for prejudice, for wrong thinking. D.A. Carson points out this is not merely a challenge to Nathaniel, but it's an invitation to us as well. Come and see Jesus. And you will find Him to be all that the Scripture says that He is. And so, Philip issues two commands, two separate commands. They're not one, although it looks like one, it's two. Come, number one, and then look upon Jesus. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what if we started evangelizing like that? Come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. Oh, the, the, the whole of Jesus, from Moses to Malachi, come and look at Him. Come and look at Him in the Gospels. Come and look at Him in Revelation. We're not hiding anything. We want you to see Him in His fullness and in His glory. You know what the problem with the evangelical church in America is today? We're a little embarrassed at that, Jesus. We, we pick and choose, you know? Because some things that Jesus said were, let's face it, they were really hard. And some people don't want to hear that. And if they don't want to hear that, they might not become Christians. Because they don't want that part of Jesus. So we just give them the Jesus they want to hear. The Jesus who makes you happy. The Jesus who makes you wealthy. The Jesus who solves all your marital problems. The Jesus who solves your bank book problems. The Jesus who solves your work problems. That Jesus. And we cut out the hard facts. Not Philip. He stands him up. He says, you come see the whole Christ. And when you see the whole Christ, you will be wholly changed. I can promise you that. But our attempts at doctoring Jesus up so that he's more palatable is no Jesus at all. It's no wonder then that so many churches are filled with people who don't act like Jesus. Because they never really met the real Jesus. Just the Jesus of somebody's imagination or somebody's program that taught you how to dupe people into praying a prayer and playing the game. Philip says, you've got to come see the whole man. He is the Messiah. We went from being like Philip and saying, you don't have a choice. You must come and see. Like John, you must be born again. To saying, well, do you want to? I would submit to you, you don't ever find evangelism happening in the Gospels that is an invitation. It's a command. Philip doesn't say, hey, Nathaniel, if it's convenient for your time schedule, would you like to come and meet this man? He looks at Nathaniel and he says, hey, get up and come. Jesus didn't say, well, do you like me? Because, you know, if you like me, I'll like you back. Jesus says, you must repent. You must believe. You must follow me. This is not a game. This isn't junior high Valentine party stuff. This is eternity. This is heaven and it is hell. This is salvation or loss thereof. You must come, Nathaniel. And see him as he is. There has never been a sinner who wants to come to Jesus apart from Jesus first drawing him. Well, he may think he desired Jesus first, but I got news for him. Jesus has been drawing you long before you knew it. 
If you find a sinner who wants to come to Jesus in their sin and in their rebellion on their own strength, you're going to have to throw your Bible out and come up with a new one because it's not in the Bible. Jesus comes to sinners. They come by sovereign command. And so Philip issues this to his friend. The evidence is clear. You must now come and see. Will it be in belief? However weak, however infantile? Yes, it has to be in belief. Just like Philip, just like Andrew, just like Peter. They weren't perfect. Will it have to be in denial of your own personal preferences or the soft religiosity of the world yes it will have to defy that but you must come there's a sweet irony in the next act of this drama nathaniel is invited to come and see jesus but it's actually jesus who sees him philip says come and see who's the one actually seeing it's jesus There's an exaltation of his deity because Jesus does what only God could do. Jesus looks through time. He looks through space and he sees Nathanael laying under a fig tree. And he says, hey, I saw you laying there. How do you know my name, Jesus? Well, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. That fig tree grown in the homes and the courtyards of Middle Eastern homes back in that era for shade for the home. I saw you under there. I saw you resting. Notice that Jesus initiates. He says, Ah, behold, Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Not only did he see Nathaniel's physical position, he sees into Nathaniel's heart. Only God can do that. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 8, we read this God who knows the heart, He knows our thoughts. Jesus has a platform to exalt the fact that He is God by doing things only God can do. So before Nathaniel ever has a discussion with Jesus, Jesus hails him from afar and interprets his thoughts and the contours of his heart. It's one thing to see Jesus, but it changes the trajectory completely when Jesus sees you. So it is for Nathaniel. Who are you? How do you know me? Have you ever had that experience in public? Somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, aren't you? And you're kind of looking at them like, who are you? (laughs) Social media makes that very, I think, much more common today. I was in a grocery store a number of years ago, and there was a family that was looking at the possibility of moving to Midland from California for a job. They were here to interview for the job, and I was walking down the aisle, minding my own business, and I passed by this couple, and they're kind of like whispering to each other, and then they said, hey, aren't you Brian Fairchild? And I looked at them like, you know, did Siri tell you? (laughs) Who are you? Well, we saw you on Facebook. We looked your church up. Okay, well, that's kind of, you know, that's a little relief, but But have you ever had that? It's very awkward, isn't it? It's kind of unnerving at first. And and yet here, can you imagine Jesus looking from afar? You're not even up close. And he not only says, hey, you're so-and-so. He says, let me tell you what's in your heart. Whoa. Whole different level. Whole different level. How do you know my name? Rather, how do you know me? I don't know, Nathaniel, how is it you think I know you? And you know in Nathaniel's mind, it's got to be turning. Yeah, that's right, Philip said, this man is the son of God. This is starting to add up. It's starting to add up. It's, he's not an imposter. He's doing things only God can do. What's the meaning of all this? Simply this. He must be who he says he is. 
Notice Jesus' statement. He's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Does that mean he's sinless? No, remember, he's a skeptic. Does that mean he's perfect and just, you know, just a great guy and really doesn't need a lot of saving? Just a, just a skosh to get him over the edge. No, what Jesus is saying is simply this, that he was willing to come consider the evidence. That's what it means, not to have deceit. He was willing to come and examine for himself. And Jesus says, rather than live in his prejudice, be deceived by his prejudice, he at least was going to come and check it out. He was willing to believe. If you can show me the facts, I'll believe. And Jesus says, thus, no deceit in this man. He's just honest. He was honest in his accusation and his skepticism, and he's honest in his inquiry. He was willing to believe something contrary to what he and everyone else who had grown up around him, including his mom and dad, had taught him. He was willing to believe something completely opposite, to go against the culture. Very quickly, we've got to hurry. But notice Jesus' unique, and again, Jesus never wasted an appointment. Jesus never wasted a word. He says, behold, an Israelite. Not a Jew. An Israelite. What's significant about an Israelite? Where did the name Israelite come from? A man by the name of Israel. Who was prior to becoming Israel known as Jacob, which means one who deceives. Jesus is contrasting, isn't he? Here's a man with no deceit, no guile in his mind, descended from one who formerly was a deceiver. That's how he was known. But yet, Jacob, like Nathaniel, after he wrestled with God, was changed, wasn't he? And his name went from being deceiver to Israel. But only after he had encountered the living God. It's the same as it will be for Nathaniel. He's a man after the heart of his forefather Israel, not Jacob. For Nathaniel has come that he might believe. Not to deceit. Not for malicious inquiry. And Jesus commends this. Again, the question, how does Jesus know this? Well, Nathaniel answers that for us in verse 49. Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's a pretty complete definition. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are all in all. Yeah, I was napping under that fig tree used for privacy, but you saw right through it. You knew where I was, when I was there, and you knew what was on my mind. Before Philip had come to me, you saw me there. Before. There was another before seemed like just a few verses ago. Oh, that's right, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Before anything else existed, He was. He's the God who is before, who sees before. He's not an ordinary rabbi. He is the Son of God. Look lastly, verses 50 and 51. There's the exaltation of Christ's glory. Jesus says to to him, do you you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? That is child's play. You are going to see far greater things than this. In fact, John says, doesn't he, in John 21, 25, uh, and there are so many other things also which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You thought that was something? Oh, Nathaniel. 
Oh, Nathaniel, you will see this. Truly, truly. Only used in John, by the way. Other Gospels, it's just truly or verily. But here, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, you are going to see heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, who else had that happen to them? Jacob. You remember the stairway to heaven? The ladder to heaven? And the angels were going up and down the ladder? Jesus says, I'm the true Israel. I'm the true one. And and Nathaniel, you are going to see, you are going to see the Son of Man having the angels of heaven descend upon Him and go from Him. No longer is the man formerly known as Jacob, the true Israel of God. No, no longer is he the one who has the blessings of God poured out of him in some temporary fashion. It is me. I am the Israel of God. I am the one who stands as the mediator between God and His people. Not Jacob. It's me. Through me come the greatest blessings of life and from me goes relationship to the father coming and going it is me now notice jesus as he closes here and as we close this morning uses an interesting term for himself he says the son of man you will see the angels of god ascending and descending upon the mediator no longer israel no longer jacob but me, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And I am the Son of Man. Why does he use the term Son of Man? Why doesn't he just say God? Or the Son of God? Well, first of all, it links us back to Daniel chapter 7. You remember Daniel's vision. The Son of Man. In the Ancient of Days. He is God. Secondly, the term Son of Man was free from the political misunderstanding of Jesus. As we'll talk about on Palm Sunday, there was so much political tied up in the spiritual temperature of Israel at that time, just as it is here. But the Son of Man was not a term that could be confused. It had no political overtones to it whatsoever. And third, the Son of Man carried no such baggage. It had precedent and it had authority without problems we can look at daniel 7 and we can see it and yet it has no new testament confusion and jesus says nathaniel it's me it's me i am messiah i am promised one i am king of my people I'm the final and ultimate fulfillment of Israel. Uh, in that role, I has not seen nor ear heard the things which the Son of Man has yet to do. Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. But you follow me and you will. What an amazing hope. What amazing anticipation. What amazing belief. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? You must believe that. It is your only hope in this life and for the life to come. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace that You have revealed Your Son, the Lord Jesus, to us so clearly. We pray, Father, that you would grant to us the faith to believe. We know that faith, even faith, is a gift of God. It is not our own. So, God, we pray that you would grant us faith to believe that would then yield in us following as Andrew and Peter and John and Philip and Nathaniel did. 
And in following you, may we see more and more of who you are. Our faith would be strengthened. And you would cause our faith to grow. You've commanded us to believe. Now help our unbelief. For you are our only hope, even in that. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. And for his glory as our Messiah. Amen.